This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth Dare, and today we're going to talk about forced gang recruitment in Latin America. But uh, we're going to do a little bait and switch. Uh, JJ Genflone is off in PhD land doing research or some such thing this week. So we're bringing on Amber Moffat, who did a few episodes with us earlier this year. Hello, Amber. Hi. And we're going to talk. Welcome, JJ, for helping cover for you, by the way. I'm sure she's saying something right now. I'm sure she is. I'm no JJ, but I'll do my best. So, Amber, uh, what's happened since we talked in December? Well, I officially graduated and got my master's degree, so I am now officially a master. So that's pretty exciting. Otherwise, I'm just keeping up with reading the news and doing research where I can, starting some of my own research projects, not theoretically, but kind of, sort of, you know, doing what I can on my own while, as most graduates experience, doing the ever-elusive job search for your first position out out of your degree program. So that's pretty much it. And before going on to today's topic, wanted to uh, make sure all of you knew that uh, the Senate passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act of 2017. We had done an episode in legislation and had mentioned that the House passed it. So now the Senate passed it. So presumably the president will soon sign it. And also the Abolish Human Trafficking Act also passed the Senate. And we expect that that will also be signed by the president. So if you wonder what those pieces of legislation are about, uh, go and listen to our episodes or Google them, and uh, it'll give you an idea. But yeah, It was very thorough. I listened to it while I was cooking one night. You guys were detailed. So many details of legislation, especially when it's a reauthorization over a reauthorization over a reauthorization. <laughs> So uh, this is a topic that you wanted to do today. So uh, what interested you about forced gang recruitment? Well, I did a giant paper at the end of my master's program on gender equality in post-conflict situations. One of the case studies was actually El Salvador. And so I started learning more and more about what has happened in El Salvador since their civil war. And a lot of it has to do with the rise in gang violence that has happened and the effects thereof. So that's what got me initially interested in this topic. And then I can't, you know, then come to find out it's a big problem in Guatemala and Honduras as well. I mean, it's, it's a huge problem in those, those three countries And so I just started looking more and more into it. And it's, I feel like it's an interesting topic with regards to human trafficking, because not only is forced gang recruitment a form of human trafficking in and of itself, it's also 
something that causes, or at least has caused, mass migration movements from Latin America, a lot to the U.S., some to other countries, like especially recently Costa Rica and Panama and Mexico. And so whenever you have mass migration movements, you're also going to have, or at least most likely have, human trafficking within that as well. Migrants are vulnerable to human trafficking, but in this particular instance, a lot of the migrants that have been moving or had that, a lot of the people who have been migrating are unaccompanied minors. And that's just another point of vulnerability as well. So you've got all these different intersecting points of vulnerability that feed into human trafficking. And so it's it's a really awful subject. I mean, what within human trafficking is not heartbreaking and, and emotionally draining to learn about, but at the same time, it's also kind of an interesting case that you don't find in many other places. You have you have conflict zones in other parts of the world, but this is this is more of what is called generalized violence, not necessarily considered a conflict zone per se, in that there's no war happening, but there's a lot of violence happening and that's getting people to flee and then you have, you know, part of that violence is the forced gang recruitment itself. So anyway, so it was just kind of an interesting subject that I started looking more and more into. And, you know, a lot of my specialization or a lot of my research has specialized in Colombia. And so being able to branch out of Colombia into some other Latin American countries was also kind of a nice variation in my research experience. So where I think it might be good to start would be to give people an idea what this looks like, like what what gang recruitment looks like, why it's a problem, and how that can drive migration and unaccompanied minors mm-hmm. before getting into the trafficking specific. Sure. I mean, I can, I can also go into a little bit of a historical background, too, as to where these gangs kind of came out of as well, and I think that might be useful So most of my expertise is going to be in El Salvador because that's where a lot of my research has come from. But I did look into some from Honduras and and Guatemala as well. A little bit as far as Mexico goes just because the southern part of Mexico from the little bit of research there that I have deals with cartels that are there along that Mexico-Guatemala border. So what happened is that in El Salvador there was a civil war that came from you know it was spurred from wage inequality and corruption that was happening massive massive inequalities and a lot of poverty and so there there that's where this civil war kind of was was erupted from was this culture and society of massive inequality and poverty. And because of the violence, then people fled from El Salvador a lot to the U.S. And a lot of them went to L.A. So in L.A., they were already having problems with gangs and gang culture, especially among the youth. So a lot of these 
a lot of those who fled, the younger kids and adolescents ended up becoming involved in these in these gangs because LA was also very, very racially divided as far as gang culture goes. And it was a matter of it, it was a matter of protection from other gangs, protection from other groups that were racist as well. There was a lot of racism going on, not just from Caucasians in LA, but also heavily from Mexicans in LA. They were very racist against Salvadorans. So these gangs started coalescing and, and new gangs forming specifically for Salvadorans. But then in the 90s, when legislation was passed that broadened the parameters for which somebody could get deported back home, many of these, many of these gang members ended up getting deported back home to El Salvador. When they got back to El Salvador, though, the problems with poverty and inequality in that society hadn't really improved since the Civil War. So people were still extraordinarily hungry. There were extremely high levels of unemployment and very little opportunity for young men in particular to find employment and so their recourse was, well, we have experience with gang culture, so we're going to create our own gangs here. And from my understanding, there's, you know, that's a, it's kind of a, a similar type story with Honduras uh, and Guatemala, people getting deported who had gang experience. Additionally, the gangs from El Salvador, they were broadened and, and spread to other countries just that kind of culture spread. And um, and so then you start seeing a huge rise in gang violence because it was a means to survival. And what has ended up happening is because these problems with poverty and underdevelopment and corruption and unemployment have persisted, the gang problem hasn't been lessened at all because there are so few opportunities for people coming out of school to find employment. So they don't have much other recourse. And so then what happens, what has happened since then is the violence has actually escalated over the past, you know, two decades. And so as the violence persists, people are fleeing from from the violence because these gangs, the way that they are surviving is a lot from extortion in all three of these countries. These gangs, that's their primary income is extortion of businesses, extortion of, of transportation, drivers, bus drivers, taxi drivers, transportation companies, the people running them, and you know, some some of the listeners may have heard news because it actually has been in the news relatively recently, like on NPR, as far as the the extortion of these transportation drivers and then, uh, like I said, local businesses. And unfortunately, with extortion, if you want to avoid, so so either you have the option of paying rent, is what it's called, la, uh, la renta. And so you have the option of, of paying these gangs, or if you don't pay these gangs, their only recourse for enforcement is violence. 
so they end up threatening you, threatening to kill you, threatening to kill your family, threatening rape. They also use rape as a threat. So if you have daughters or your wife or younger sisters, they threaten you with though with you know harm to harm to those people of your family, those members of your family rather, and so they they really thrive off of fear and fear can't be i mean it's really hard to uphold that that general fear of recourse without following through and so that's where the the rise in violence has partly come from is it's a matter of showing people yes you are serious and yes there is a consequence if you don't do what we say and so that's kind of why you're seeing so many people fleeing these countries is because they're afraid for their own lives. They're afraid for their children's lives. They're afraid for their families' lives because these gangs are actually following through on this. They are actually killing members of your family if you don't pay the rent. They are actually killing transportation drivers if they refuse to pay the rent. And then you also see this as far as government crackdowns. There have been instances where when the government cracks down, then the gangs have retaliated even more by doing bigger violent displays of primarily, again, with the transportation workers. So you get a lot of people leaving the country because they're being threatened. And then what also has gone on is a lot of people, primarily the youth, are threatened because the gangs have started forcibly recruiting people and mostly adolescents are targeted, adolescents and young adults. And so if you don't want to join a gang, you can either leave you or you can endure the threats and, and possible repercussions from the gang that is trying to recruit you. So a lot of the people who have been migrating are people who have been approached by gangs and been threatened because they refuse to join. So what are the governments and law enforcement like in some of these countries? I know Honduras has had a lot of instability with their government. Guatemala has a lot of issues with labor rights and lots of poverty. But uh, Right. I don't know if you have anything to add about those, but uh, specifically, what can you tell me about El Salvador? Uh, well, El Salvador, they actually implemented the policy of mano dura, which is the hard hand. And basically what that was is, is it helped, it, it was like a hard crackdown on gangs. And so a lot of people were being arrested just for being just for being suspected of being in a gang. So anybody who had tattoos, anybody who was just kind of loitering around, anybody who was traveling, especially young men who were traveling in groups, were able to be arrested, detained, beaten, be just on the suspicion of being in a gang. And so, and a lot of people were imprisoned a lot, a lot of people were imprisoned. And a lot of them were gang members, but a lot of them weren't gang members. And it actually kind of backfired and made the violence even worse in the end because since so many people were in prison, it allowed those gang members 
to become more organized. And so they, they started actually forming a much more organized system as far as groups. And then they, they were able to form more of a hierarchy. And so you had then more localized gang groups that then kind of, I guess, reported to the bigger groups. And, and then you also had the people who were imprisoned who were not in gangs. And when you're imprisoned, again, you're, you're in a close proximity with these, with these other gang members. And so you're under threat every single day, every moment of the day. And especially in El Salvador that has some of the most overcrowded prisons in the country. It's ridiculously overcrowded. And so it becomes, you know, very similar to a lot of other, to prison in, in, I mean, how we we see it on television here in the U.S., which Mm -hmm. is, you know, you either become part of one of the groups or you're the target of all the groups. And so the same thing happened in El Salvador. Additionally, because the prisons became so overcrowded, they started having a lot of inter-gang violence in the prisons. So they had to separate the gangs into different prisons. So you were put into this prison if you were part of MS-13 and this prison if you were part of Barrio 18. And which I understand where they came up with that idea because they kept having them kill each other when they were in the same prison. But at the same time, when when they were separated into their different prisons, again, they became just strengthened and much more organized within those prisons. So that's kind of what happened in El Salvador. I'm not as familiar as far as what exactly has happened in Honduras and in Guatemala, but I do know that they've had a lot of problems. All three countries have had problems with corruption. And Mm -hmm. so there have been instances of law enforcement working with the gangs. There have been instances of law enforcement being threatened by the gangs. So if you were a police officer and you had a daughter, the gangs might be targeting your daughter, for instance. And so then, you know, there's a lot of law enforcement that will just turn a blind eye to what's happening. Um, And that's happened in all three countries. And there have been law enforcement, there have been efforts in all three countries to kind of crack down on these gangs, but because of corruption and capacity, they just haven't been able to effectively handle it. Right. Uh, so one of the ones you mentioned was MS-13, which some people became aware of when President Trump mentioned them in New York. Mm-hmm. And they have a presence in many places in the United States. Uh, sometimes they're said to cooperate with cartels. But uh, they're one of the ones that began in Southern California that you're referring to, right? Yeah. Yeah, them and, and Barrio 18 or Barrio, Barrio 18, they also started in L.A. find that a bit ironic. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an interesting situation because you have, I mean, I understand the desire to deport people who are who who are performing criminal acts and and making the drug problem worse and and making violence worse in certain neighborhoods that they control but at the same time 
you can't just take this whole, oh, that's not our problem, so let's deport them back to where they came from, because then you have the situation that's now happened, which is, it's just basically, basically we exported our gang problem to another country, but to a country who was much less capable of handling it than we are. And we still have our own problems. I mean, just seeing with how much more capacity the U.S. has than El Salvador, for instance, it's, we have a hard enough time handling gangs in certain cities here in the U.S., let alone when you have a country like El Salvador or, or Guatemala or Honduras that, that has high, high levels of corruption or, and high, high levels of poverty and, and a lot of inequality and limited government capacity to deal with these problems. So, I mean, you can only imagine with how difficult it is for us, how much more difficult it is for them. And now, because we exported our gang problem, it they've been able to take a hold in a place that we have much less control over. And they still communicate with the the sections of those gangs here in the U.S. as well. I don't know how intimately they're in communication, but I do know that there is coordination between the gangs in El Salvador and the gangs here in the U.S. And then, you know, the different branches elsewhere, like in, in Honduras, both of those gangs are big in Honduras. And so anyway, so we basically exported this problem to Latin America and now right. we're dealing with it in a much bigger way. Right. So one thing I'll mention, the in 2014, when unaccompanied minors, when there was a surge then, then the U.S. worked with Mexico to implement Programa Frontera Sur, or the Southern Border Plan, gave them $130 million. And for that year, they went and provided more border security so that Hondurans, Guatemalans, and Salvadorans, and others would have a harder time getting through to the United States. Mm -hmm. But those things don't last forever, and that doesn't solve the underlying problem. Right. Well, even at the time when they implemented those measures, and they were actually doing a lot of campaigning in those three countries, it's called the, the Northern Triangle of Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, they were doing campaigning in those countries to try and discourage people from migrating. And they were trying to educate people and say, if you make it to the border, you will be turned back. If you make it into the U.S., you will be deported. If you and, and then also trying to educate people on the risks that they experience during that migration, because that trip is not an easy trip to make. And it's fraught with with risk and with violence and with exploitation. And so they were trying to educate people on these risks, but research showed that it actually didn't make a difference. People, there was no, there was no, or at least very little decrease in the number of people who tried to migrate. So people were still leaving. They understood the risks. They, they knew it was going to happen. They knew that there was a possibility of being turned back at the border or being sent back should they make it across the border. And they wanted to go anyway. Well, and there's all, there's also the legitimate well, quasi-legitimate migrants from, say, Guatemala to Mexico who are farm laborers, coffee farmers, who may or may not go through, quote, legal means, but nevertheless migrate to work. 
Right. Well, and, and that's one thing that I keep thinking about with this whole, you know, risk of mass, more mass de deportations is that in El Salvador and then in, in a lot of other Latin American countries as well, the income that they receive from remittances is huge. It's in El Salvador, it's something like 10 to 12% of their economy is remittances. If I'm remembering that number correctly, I'll have to look here and make sure I'm actually quoting it correctly. But it's a huge number. And so if, if you deport a lot of those people, you're just making those underlying, those underlying factors that feed into that gang violence even worse because now that's a huge part of the economy that is gone. And that money is, is providing opportunities for people to get educated, is providing opportunities for people to eat. And now all of a sudden that money is not coming into these families in, in Central and, and South America. And so then what are they gonna do? You know, it, it, you still have even higher levels of unemployment now and even higher levels of poverty and that just is even more incentive to join a gang, even if you didn't want to in the first place. You're still, you know, when you're when you're faced with very few alternatives, it's amazing the lengths that someone will go to to feed their family. Well, and the domino effects, and then we have a bunch of minors and other people trying to escape gang violence, and so they risk the journey to our border and ask for asylum. And then we have this glut of asylum request for which we don't have the judicial infrastructure to properly handle. Mm -hmm. And then we release people and it just, yeah, you it's know, a it, it's, situation. Th th there's no simple, easy solution. No, definitely not. I mean, th these, these kinds of, these kinds of issues are always so messy and, there, there are so many factors feeding into them that need to be corrected that there, that you're right, there is no easy solution whatsoever. Although not addressing the problem is going to be just as bad, if not worse, than trying to find solutions, even though they are difficult solutions. Right. Well, it's, it's one reason that people like me, probably yourself as well, that we have some belief in development and democracy promotion because mm -hmm. having a bunch of unstable countries just south of us is not a good thing. It's not good for trade. It's not good for security. And if they're failing in some respect, that's not just going to stay contained. And so, right. so that money can sometimes be very well spent if it's spent smartly. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that's why, that's why I, I'm, I'm a big advocate of the idea that that just saying, oh, it's not our problem, and then deporting them, kind of like I was saying earlier, and like, oh, no, this is your problem, these are your nationals. Well, we, don't, we no longer live in, a, in an isolated world where we can do that. These problems spread to us. So if our southern borders, if, if our southern neighbors, rather, are underdeveloped and suffering from huge rates of unemployment, then that will soon become our problem because people will be migrating. Like you said, there can be some security risks that go with that for sure. There's, you know, and so that's, I mean, that's kind of the whole idea for 
foreign aid is is to try and help mitigate these problems from happening in the first place. If we can help a country become more developed and be able to take care of itself, that's one the less source of these massive problems that that we might be able to see in security or in in development. And that's kind of you know that's kind of what's happened in other areas of the world. I mean, we won't get into that because those those are their own things, but but that's what's happened in a lot of other areas where we've seen these mass migration movements is that people don't move when they're happy. You know, mm-hmm. people don't move when they're in a great situation and their their government is taking care of them or or when they're able to take care of themselves. That's not when you move. You know, you move because you're fleeing from something. You move because you have no economic opportunities where you're at. You move because of of these other factors, not when life is amazing. And actually a lot, you know, in, in the case of El Salvador, a lot of these migrants, and even though they've been in the U.S. for many years, a lot of them want to go back. A lot of the ones who just came here, they want, they want to go back one day. The problem is, is they can't without risking their lives for, you know, be that from gangs, because these gangs are keeping an eye out for them, they are looking for them, or if it's, you know, more of a labor migration situation where they're just moving for economic opportunity to be able to feed their families back home. A lot Mm -hmm. of these people want to go back home, but they can't until that, until they actually have the opportunity to go back home. Well, and with these countries, it's sometimes assumed that Latin America and everyone in Central America speaks Spanish as their primary language when that's not the case. I know Guatemala mm-hmm. has quite a large indigenous population where they primarily speak other languages. I believe that's part- somewhat true of Honduras as well. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, when you, when you say that too, it's not even just one indigenous group. It's mm-hmm. hundreds of indigenous groups. You know, I don't, I don't know about hundreds in... in one country, but I do know in, in a lot of Latin American countries, there are many, many, many indigenous groups that still live there and they speak other languages. You're, I mean, you're exactly, you're exactly right. They speak Mayan, for instance. That's still a language today, even though most Americans don't know that. That's still a language and it's not Spanish. So, so yeah, I mean, you're not even talking about one whole indigenous group. So you're not, it's not like you're dealing with two groups. You're dealing with dozens, if not hundreds. Well, and from what I know about with uh, Mexico and cartels, and, and gangs as well, but cartels in Mexico, there's different degrees of vulnerability. Since like, if you're in South Mexico and you're indigenous, you're already at the bottom of the pecking order in terms of what you do for a living and the fact that you're, you're not Latino. So right. uh, imagine All that can play. communities yeah. have been targeted a lot too. And so that's another point of vulnerability as well. Okay. Well, you mentioned it a bit. So go a little deeper into what uh, forced recruitment means for, to get into trafficking specifically. Sure. So, you know, the forced recruitment, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's basically a gang member coming up to you and saying, you're going to join this gang and here's what you're going to do for us. And then if you say no, they're going to say, okay, well, if you don't join us, then here are the consequences and hence the threats to you and your family or your friends or your girlfriend or whatever the case may be. And the thing is, is a lot of this forced recruitment, because these gangs are primarily youth, 
the forced recruitment is happening a lot with youth. And so you see forced recruitment a lot with adolescent adolescent boys or even younger boys, and they're forcibly recruited into the gang to perform as a lookout, for instance, or to transport drugs or to, you know, any number of activities that these gangs participate in. You know, some of them are recruited to be assassins, for instance, which sounds like a movie, but it's it's an actual reality. And then you have forced gang recruitment with, with young girls, and they're forcibly recruited, a lot of them, to be gang girlfriends. And so, you know, if you see, if there's a gang member and he's taken a liking to you for whatever reason, then they basically force you to be their girlfriend. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily just the girlfriend of one gang member. Then, depending on whose girlfriend you are or which gang you're in, you know, then you become free reign for many of the gang members. And that's not to say that that's the only reason why girls get recruited. That's just one of the big ones. Girls also get recruited for other for other reasons, just like boys. They get recruited to be lookouts. They get recruited to be to help with drug transportation and the drug trade, they get recruited to carry out violent acts as well. So I don't want to necessarily single that out, but that's something that happens to girls that doesn't happen as often to the boys. Although again, it, it does happen to boys, just not nearly as often. So that's the forced recruitment aspect. And this forced recruitment is actually being seen at younger and younger ages. It used to be right around 13, 14 when you'd start to see this, but that age has has gotten pushed younger and younger in more recent years to actually, there have been reports of people as young as six being forcibly recruited. There, there have been unaccompanied minors as young as four seen at the border that have been fleeing because of forced recruitment tactics that have been used and granted I, I, th I think the the average age is still a little bit older it's it's more around like 10 now I think from a lot of the reports that I've read but you, it's not uncommon to see it at a younger age now and it's it's really scary too because these recruitments aren't just happening on the street corner when you're walking to the store, they're actually happening in schools. It's actually very common. Let's see, I'm trying to remember which report it came from. Um, I'll, I'll make sure I'll make sure I send you the link to the report after after we get done with the podcast. But it said over half the schools in El Salvador, it's really common to see anywhere from six to ten gang members in each school there for purposes of recruitment, recruiting in the schools. And so a lot of girls stop going to school altogether. Um, boys end up not going out if they can't go in a group because they're under threat of, of you know, gang violence. And so that's kind of the forced recruitment aspect that's happening a lot. And, and then again, like I said, you know, it's it's not like you can just tell these gang members, oh, no, I'm not interested. Thanks for asking, though. You know, it's you either do it or you endure threats and violence from these gangs. There have been 
many, many reports of, of people who have refused to join a gang and then they find out the next day their cousin's been killed just because they refused or now there are threats against their sister or what there's one report that I read that had a victim account of a boy who fled because when he refused to join a gang, he literally saw his grandfather being beaten and then killed because he refused. So it's a really big problem among the youth in a, in the Northern Triangle. Well, to draw a few parallels for people with child soldiers, which uh, we haven't done a podcast on yet, but soon, like uh, with the LRA, they didn't necessarily all stay a long time. They didn't necessarily all want to be there a long time, but there's this at least uh, in places where there's a severe state failure or uh, just things falling apart, like uh, Sierra Leone, where you, you know you really don't have a whole lot of choices when it's that bad, and that's where you have. Right. But they're also very similar to gangs. They're just armed militant gangs in that case. But uh, the biggest parallel I'm wondering about is like what what happens with the mentality of of the people who join and how long do they stay and things like that. Yeah, I think I actually haven't looked into how long they stay. I I should though. Um there have been a lot of well, I don't know about a lot, but there have been some scholars who have drawn those parallels and they, you know, it is it is important to recognize that yes, they are different situations, but you're but you're absolutely correct in that there there are a lot of similarities. And in fact, one scholar was talking about how despite these similarities, despite the fact that people join under threat or join for survival means or join because they were coerced, just like a lot of child soldiers do, there's international support for child soldiers in reintegrating them, whereas mm -hmm. there's only stigma for gang members because once they've joined the gang whether it be by choice or not, you're seen as a gang member and you're seen as a hooligan and you're seen as a criminal. And so there's, there's no support for you. And, you know, some of these gang members, some of these people who join the gangs, they, they do want out. And I have done, I have read some accounts of people who want out and that whole, you know, once you're part of a gang, you can never leave kind of thing that you see on TV is real. You know, if you if you try telling these people that you want out or that you want to calm down, quote unquote, then you're threatened by those members that you used to be working with. And, you know, then you get all those threats again to you and to your family. And there have been people who have had to migrate because they wanted out of the gang and they couldn't get out unless they left. And which is kind of ironic because they don't want to be part of the gang, but then once, but once they're at the border, especially, especially in, in the time frame where a lot of these gangs were getting tattoos, if you had a tattoo, you were seen as a gang member. And so once you got to the border, you were seen as nothing more than a criminal, even though you're trying to flee. And so there are some exceptions sometimes. There have been accounts of people who, when they have kids, then they'll kind of be seen as an inactive member. And there are, I was, I was 
reading an account today, actually, and it said if you had kids that sometimes you could get out relatively safe, safely if you had a religious conversion or what was the third one? I don't remember the third one, but there were three instances. Like I said, I just read it today. But sometimes you can make it out. As to the actual length of how long some people stay in, I mean, I think it's kind of, I think it's kind of across the board. I, again, don't quote me on this because I'm not 100% certain, but I do know some people stay in for life. Some people are obviously killed in the gangs. Some people manage to get out somehow. Some people flat out leave. The thing is, is if you leave, a lot of times you have to actually leave the country because since these gangs have become so organized, they are all, all over these three countries and they communicate with one another. So if you leave one town in El Salvador and you move across to the other side of El Salvador, they will communicate with the gang members or the gang groups that are on that side of El Salvador and tell them to look out for you. So, you know, there's actually a lot of migrants who try to go across the country first and migrate somewhere else in the country and then when they're found again, that's when they realize they have to actually leave the country. And it's the same thing for gang members who want to get out. And one of the initiation methods is that when you join a gang, dep again, depending on which group you're a part of, when you join the gang, your initiation is to find the ex-gang members and kill them. So when you leave, you're pretty much targeted for the rest of your life. And even if you are able to leave, you were still involved with one particular gang, and so you're seen as all the other from you're seen by all the other gangs as still being a part of that one. So if you're MS13, and then you somehow manage to get out of MS13, you're still targeted by Barrio 18, and that doesn't really end. So it's not a pleasant situation. There's a few other things I want to ask about. So we, it seems like gangs are able to skew younger than us child soldier situations because despite the fact that we use the term child soldiers often most often they're teenagers and often between the ages of 14 and 16 because there's a practical reason for soldiers to be a certain age to do certain things mm -hmm. to not just be soldiers, but to carry things and not have to be taken care of. Whereas when you're in a quasi-stable region where you still have schools and such, and where you're not requiring the same type of militants, or at least these roving bands like you might have in a child soldier region, I could see how it'd make it easier for younger children to be targets of a gang. Yeah, I mean, additionally, if you think of some of the the activities that gangs take part in, kids, younger children then have more of a purpose, like like being a lookout, for instance. It's a little bit easier for a kid to be a lookout because they're A, unassuming, and B, because of their small stature. I mean, it's, it's a little easier for them to go unseen in some instances. And so they, you know, they have, they have utility in recruiting younger and younger and then you also have utility in recruiting younger because then you're you're still in such formative years that 
you develop those ties earlier and they become stronger and they become more and more part of your identity. Right. Now, I highly doubt that that's actually going through some people's heads and like, oh, well, if I get a six, if I recruit a six-year-old, then, you know, their identity ties are going to be that much stronger. I doubt that's a conscious, a conscious thing happening, but, but it is, it is, you know, truth in psychology. It's, that's going to happen. Right. I mean, the, the community aspect, the sense of self, sometimes, uh, feeling more confident or feeling encouraged to be a certain type of person that's a draw for child soldiers it's a draw for gangs yeah and it, and then also just getting yeah. food you know getting yeah. food or money well trafficking situations always foster some type of dependence and if it's a dependence that also ties into identity where they're forced into it but then they might want to leave but then they have this distorted loyalty because they do get some benefits from the gang it just makes it psychologically complicated yeah so yeah where where do we go from here sir any did you read any policy suggestions or you have any thoughts um, yourself just well the other thing that we haven't really talked about too is i mean we we kind of covered it in one of the last podcasts that mm -hmm. that i did with you but is the actual waves of migrants and what they go through. Mm -hmm. So even if you you do avoid becoming part of the gang and then you do you decide to migrate, there's a lot of trafficking that happens on the way to wherever you're migrating to. And so that's a whole other human trafficking angle to this problem is that, you know, forced recruitment in and of itself is human trafficking. If you look at the definition of human trafficking, it has all three, it has, you know, um, act means and purpose, but then you have the migrants themselves who are making this tremendously dangerous journey through gang territory and then through cartel territory and then through harsh landscapes that are dangerous to traverse um, and then so there's a lot of trafficking that happens to the migrants on the way and you know as as we've discussed before my my being a migrant gives you one point of vulnerability and then because so many of these migrants are children it's another point of vulnerability and so you know you get various different circumstances that will happen, which is, you know, sometimes, especially with children, when you're relying on, on coyotes or smugglers, sometimes what will happen is you make it to one smuggler, fine, and then you may, they take you to the next one, and that next one will actually hold you until they receive payment from your family. And then... And, and so what a lot of kids experience is, is a form of domestic servitude. So they're being held. They can't leave. But while they're there, they're going to cook and they're going to clean and they're going to do various domestic activities for the person holding them until they get their payment and then they'll move them on to the next person. Additionally, there are a lot of instances of forced prostitution that happen along the way. The, especially on the Guatemala-Mexican border, it's particularly 
bad there as far as far as forced prostitution goes. There are a lot of cartels in that area, the Zetas, that control kind of that area. And there are a lot of brothels simply because there's so many migrants going through there. And one I mean one of the one of the reports I read actually said something to the effect of of that it's the migration population that is what is keeping this sexual exploitation industry alive. And just because there's so many people going through there and and so you get that human traffic that form of human trafficking on the way in addition to the threat of forced recruitment back home. To answer your question, yes, there are some policy recommendations that I've read. A lot of it a lot of it is all about it's not it's not necessarily about cracking down on the gangs. It's about building the capacity in those countries and creating opportunities for adolescents and young adults that will hopefully prevent them from having the need to rely on gangs in the first place or having it'll give them an alternative of some sort to gang membership. And so, you know, um, in El Salvador, for instance, some of the recommendations are talking about you need to stop targeting gangs in this super hard crackdown. Don't let them reign free. It's not like we're not going to do anything, but this whole mano dura effect or, or policy that they had before obviously didn't work and it made the problem worse. And so that's, that's not the right way to go about it. It talked about, you know, creating employment opportunities, creating capacity in law enforcement to help actually be able to fight back or protect citizens from violence. And, the same, the same with Guatemala and Honduras. A lot of those those policy recommendations are the same for those two countries as well. And then it actually, I've read some policy recommendations for the international community also. And a lot of these policies, so one of them is, is kind of interesting, which is that, so the U.S. has put some of these gangs on lists that if you're an NGO in the Northern Triangle and you do work with youth, if you do work with any youth that is a part of a gang, you are not eligible for this for this funding that we're giving as international aid, which can be problematic because though we don't want to necessarily fund these gangs, a lot of these people don't want to be part of the gang. And if you don't give them an alternative, if you don't give them an opportunity elsewhere, then they have no choice but to stay in the gang. And so some of the policy recommendations for the U.S., for instance, is to not have these gangs on these absolute hard no lists of, no, we will not associate with you whatsoever. And then the biggest policy recommendation for, for the international community on a whole that I've seen is, A, protection of migrants, a.k.a. don't just deport them back to a situation that is going to make them want to leave again or is going to kill them, and B, to give aid to these countries to help decrease corruption and increase development so that there can actually be employment opportunities. There can actually be a reason to go to the authorities when you're 
under threat of violence and they can actually do something about it. And so that, those are the biggest policy recommendations I've seen as far as the international community goes. You know, Mexico, Mexico has actually done a, some good things in providing protection to migrants. They, not, not enough, but there is some protection that we actually don't provide in that these migrants are eligible for asylum in Mexico because Mexico follows the, the they incorporate the, the Cartagena Convention, which allows someone to be considered a refugee if they're fleeing from generalized violence, which the U.S. doesn't really incorporate. If it's just generalized violence, that's not always a valid ground for an asylum claim. You know, if we were to allow that in our asylum laws, and, and then that could be really beneficial to migrants that would allow them to stay here, they'd have more of a more of a chance to actually avoid going back to situations that, like I said, would potentially kill them. And with migrant protection, you're not just sending waves of people back to a situation that's dire and and then straining that economy even more, if that makes sense. The economy is already strained, it's already poor, it's already having a hard time supporting its citizenry. If you add more people on top of that, it's just gonna strain it even further until the development actually takes hold and, and you know starts having an effect. I've heard that uh, Congress has been not funding more immigration judges in the United States to deal with asylum cases for a while. And if we do that, that'd be great. But on the plus side, Congress has decided to hold firm on the State Department budget as far as foreign aid and such. And so they're yeah. going against the uh, Trump administration on that. Yeah, take your wins where you can get them, right? We believe in the State Department, well, fully functioning State Department, and diplomats. Diplomats are really useful to have, and we don't have diplomats in key places right now, like South Korea. <laughs> At least last I checked, we didn't. That'd be a good place to have one. But, uh, yeah, it'd be a good place to start, for sure. Okay. Well, that's, uh, I was going to say a good topic. That's not quite the word. A, a timely and important topic, and also a discouraging topic. Yeah, yeah. Especially with how messy it is, and just complex, and hard to solve. You know, I mean, we like I said before, we have a hard time with with the gang problem here in our own country. So it, you can imagine a country with way less capacity trying to deal with it. And it's also something that you know, as far as this forced recruitment, I don't, I don't want to make it seem like it's only happening in this area of Latin America. It's it's happening here in the U.S. as well. Forced gang recruitment happens here. So, you know, it's it's not just a foreign topic. It's something here at home, too. All right. Well, thanks for coming on again. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Hopefully, you will have me again. Probably. We'll have a vote. <laughs> Kidding. Maybe JJ can join us next time. I miss you, JJ. That would be good. Yeah. All right. But I guess you had a good reason. So that's what she says. I'll take a <laughs> word for it. All right. Well, have a good week, everyone. Call your congressman about things you care about and uh, make sure to focus on cat memes and stuff every so often. Stay sane. <laughs> All right. Bye. 
This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.